Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey everybody, how's it going? So glad you guys are here. I want to welcome you. My name is Dawson Scow, and I'm one of the pastors here at Brazos Fellowship. And I've had a lot of people asking me, hey, where have you been? Like, where are you? Because I used to play up here with the band a lot. In the last few months, people have been wondering, am I still here? I am. I'm still here. Um, so about a year ago, Sean Parrish uh, came to me and Rebecca McCarty with a new challenge. And Uh, As we've grown as a church, the need for pastoral care and ministry has increased as well. And and really what we have uh, been tasked with and working on is uh, developing ways to meet the needs, to target those needs of the people here at Brazos Fellowship. And so we've been developing a new ministry that we're calling Care Network, and uh, Really, the mission and the purpose of this is to identify the needs and meet those needs of the people here at Brazos Fellowship, as well as outside the four walls, really all across the Brazos Valley. Uh, That's what we're doing. And, And guys, let me tell you, it has been a dream of mine for several years now to get to be a part of something like this, to to be hands-on in ministry helping people that are suffering, that need help, and we're getting to do that. And so over the next few months, you're going to hear, be hearing more and more about the Care Network, um, how we are serving uh, at Brazos Fellowship. So um, really today, uh, really what we're talking about is going to speak to the heart of Care Network. And so I'm excited to get to share this with you. I want to recap from last week. Sam taught us last week that oftentimes, most of the time probably, we make our faith more complicated than it needs to be. That uh, really, it comes down to something very simple. Jesus taught us that the measure of our faith is really how we love others, loving like he loved. And so we're going to look at the verse, uh, the command that Jesus gave us, uh, that Sam shared with us last week comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is the only commandment, really, that Jesus was so explicit. Love the way that I have loved. And what he did, you guys, is he took the two greatest commandments of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And what he did is he raised the standard. He was always doing this. He raised the standard up, and now he said, I don't want you to just love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to love your neighbor as God loves your neighbor. He raised it. He made it a supernatural call to care and concern. So this is a very difficult thing, obviously. It's a difficult command, but this is the one command that he gave to all of us to love. And what we see last week is that this is how we determine are we growing? Are we maturing? This is the measure of our faith. Now, I want to pick up right where Sam left off last week. I want to start by asking a question. Isn't it great to live in our country in this day and time 
this point in history, of all the times we could have lived, man, how awesome is it that we are here? Think of all the amenities that we get to enjoy, right? We've got, we've got running water, plumbing, electricity. We've got automobiles. We've got, we've got toilet seats with pads on them, right? So it's super comfortable, right? We, we have cars. We have computers and smartphones. We have modern medicine, and the list could go on and on, right? You could argue, really, that, that this is the best time to ever live all throughout history where we are, right, right here in this day and time. But I wonder if sometimes these comforts are more than they're cracked up, or they're, they're intended to show us, or, or the message is that, that really these are what life should be about. But I wonder if maybe they're oftentimes a curse to us. You know, we, we see, if we look in a certain way, that, that we see how we as a society are preoccupied with comfort and ease and just making life smooth for us, right? It becomes this thing that, that we're focused on. And, and we in the older generations, really, we're, we're watching and we're waiting to see what is the impact of, of computers and the internet and these smartphones. How is that going to impact these millennials these days, you know, old fogies are like, you know, they're worried that these kids are, are ill-equipped for the hard things in life, right? Because they've had everything at their fingertips. But I think every generation is like that, right? When I grew up, it was, you know, I would go to school in the snow both hills or, or uphill both ways, right? Every generation is always like, you got it easier than we did. And, and I think uh, in some ways, every generation has its problems, its issues. Seriously, though, I wonder sometimes if we've traded in our real purpose for trying to make our lives more easy and happy and comfortable. Maybe these things have become too important. Maybe these things have even become an idol for some of us, where it is the most important. Everything suffers. You know, we entertain ourselves with sporting events, ESPN, Netflix, and video games. We choose these things because they make us feel really good, and, and sometimes we choose those at the expense of responsibility and hard work and some of the harder stuff of life. What we're going to talk about today is probably going to fly in the face of this notion of comfort. I want you right now, I want you to think about, or if you, you picked up some notes on your way in, I want you to make just a, a little list, a couple things that make you uncomfortable. What makes you uncomfortable? I want you to think about that. I'll give you a few seconds. Make your list. So what comes to mind? Maybe it's something simple like a, a pet peeve or the chair that they gave you to sit in in your cubicle at work or maybe it's a particular pair of underwear you know maybe it's maybe it's a person or a situation you know I thought of one for me and my wife apparently I have a problem uh, my wife says that I 
don't have a personal space, like a, a bubble or this force field around me, and I don't understand that other people have this force field around them either. She said, oftentimes I'm standing way too close, or I'm sitting next to them, and she says it makes them feel uncomfortable, and it definitely makes her feel uncomfortable when she sees me doing this, right? So she has this face that she makes when I'm not close enough to kick, right? And she's, she's, she's trying to get me away, you know, subtly, and, and telling me, back up, right? She's always saying that, that she's trying to, to uh, teach me about social awkwardness, you know, and, and I've decided that this is not my problem because I don't feel uncomfortable by, by these things. This is her problem, and so I, I'm, I'm going to call a counselor for her next week. So um, some of you might have thought of little things like smells or, you know, if someone's talking to you and they have something in their teeth or maybe their nose, you know, that's pretty uncomfortable. Some maybe big things like like sharing your feelings, talking about something intimate about yourself, maybe visiting a hospital, a nursing home, talking about politics, or maybe having that tough conversation with your roommate. I want to make the point today that if we're going to make our lives look like Jesus, if we're going to love like Jesus, <clears throat> we've got to evaluate our priorities. And we've got to evaluate and, and possibly change to swim upstream against this current, this culture of comfort that we live in, right? Where everything is trying to make things easier for us. <clears throat> I think we've got to evaluate and make some changes today. So if we get back to Jesus and his one command, which is to love like he loved, it's a pretty, pretty simple idea, but it begs the question, how did Jesus love the people around him? I want to focus on one of the ways. He did it in many ways, but one way that I think he was particularly careful about, he, was, uh, he prioritized this over many other ways, and it's this, that Jesus made it a point to love the unloved, the hurting, and the untouchables of society. And this really set him apart. You know, he was breaking societal and religious rules right and left in order to connect with people. He would talk with women. And in that day and time, that was, you didn't do that. You don't, you don't go to talk to women. They were of lesser value in that day and time. He valued children, probably the least of all. He valued non-Jews and foreigners, tax collectors and sinners. He sought out the unimportant and the sick. You know, he touched lepers. And he did this as he healed them so that they could feel his love while he healed them. He would make it a point to touch them. He would touch dead bodies before he raised them to life. He touched a woman with a horrible bleeding problem in order to heal her. And all of these things, guys, in that Jewish faith made you unclean. You could not enter the temple. You could not worship. You couldn't receive forgiveness of sins if you did these things. You were unclean, and yet Jesus... He didn't care about that. There was something more important to him, and it was the need of this person and the, his ability to meet that need. It trumped everything. It even trumped his own comfort. And I want to talk about a time in my life kind of like this. It is one of the most, if not the most, uncomfortable I have ever been in my life. It was about six years ago I went to Uganda, <clears throat> and we were visiting 
some of our good friends, Jason and Carrie Segner, uh, with Healing Faith, they're medical missionaries over there. And uh, I came to Jason's attention that a little three-year-old girl, her name was Kobasinja, had been burned over 80% of her body. And he realized immediately that this was way beyond his expertise, his ability to heal. So he determined that really we needed to get this girl to a hospital about two hours away where they had a burn unit. And so Jason, a friend of ours, Jonathan, and I, we jump in the car with this little girl and her mother. And uh, nothing could have prepared me for this two-hour drive where you're listening to a three-year-old crying in agony for her mother to take away this pain that she's feeling. And there was nothing any of us could do about it. And nothing can, can compare or prepare you for a government hospital in a third world country. I walked into this place, guys, and it was like a horror movie. There are, there are sick and wounded people lining the hallways, lining the stairwells. There were screams. There was blood all over the floor. It's not like a hospital here in the States that we're used to. And it was the farthest thing from comfortable I have ever experienced. And everything in me wanted to run from this place. And yet, we had a purpose of why we were there. A purpose that trumped our comfort. And trumped what we really wanted to do. This little girl had a need. And her family had a need. There was no way they could pay for, for the treatment that she was going to require for these burns. They had a need for mercy and someone to give it. And that was us in that moment. Jesus told a similar story in Luke chapter 10. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, and I want to stop right here and just say a Levite was just another religious leader, a teacher who was responsible for religious uh, education uh, and what they called of the law. And uh, this person was powerful politically, had a lot of clout. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, and let me uh, describe this. A Samaritan in this day and time, the people that are listening to this story, Jesus could not have chosen a more hated person. Racially, there, there was such tension between the Jews and Samaritans, and Jesus chose the Samaritan as the third character in this. So if it was a movie, it would be something like this, right? But a Samaritan, bum, 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 right? As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, notice this, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. One denarii is equal approximately to about a day's wages. So in our day and time, you can think of that's 50 to $80, maybe 150 to $200. He took this out. And gave it to him, uh, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back. <clears throat> so we give the 
priest and the Levite a hard time here, right? We, we're like, how on earth can you pass by this man who's literally on death's doorstep? You pass by on the other side. You know, what horrible person would do that? But I thought that all the way up until just a few years ago and, and realized something. These men <clears throat> had a job to do. They're, they were a priest and a Levite, and their job required them to remain clean, ceremonially clean. They could not do the job that they were required to do for God and for their people if they helped this man, if they stooped down and, and touched his wounds and healed him, they would then, it would have nullified really probably the reason they were walking on the road, right? It's a pretty legitimate justification for, you know, somebody else, you know, hopefully somebody else will come by. Um, maybe that was the reason, or maybe it was just gross, right? They were it was messy. I don't have time for that. You know, maybe it was dangerous and they were worried about their own safety, right? This man was just beaten by robbers. Maybe they're just around the corner. I've got to keep moving. You know, the thing that I think we often say, this inner dialogue, someone else is going to help. So we'll, we'll pass that off. And so we may pray for that person. Someone else is going to do it. I want to talk about uh, about three months ago, I was on the road uh, <clears throat> to uh, Huntsville on Highway 30, saw a car on the side of the road, hazards on, and as I pass, I see two people there, the hood's up, and the Holy Spirit kind of is nudging me, you know, and I'm like, I don't have time for this. My schedule is full today. I was not planning on this, and he keeps nudging. So I give in, I turn around, <clears throat> I make my way back and ask them if, if uh, they need help, and they had run out of gas. <clears throat> and what I come to find out, though, this is uh, mid-August in Bryan College Station area. They've been stranded for three hours, three hours in the heat, and not one person had stopped to ask if they need help. Not one. Think of Highway 30, guys. It is a busy highway, especially in this, uh, in that time of day is very busy and a lot of traffic. And, you know, it left me wondering, how on earth could that happen? How has no one stopped to ask? And I almost didn't stop to ask either, right? And, and I think that gets to the heart of this idea of someone else is going to take care of it. We are, we're going through life and we're busy. You know, we've got stuff to do. We've got responsibilities like taking kids to school or getting to work. I've got this job to do. And we think, you know what? Someone else can do that. And here's the question I want to ask. If not us, then who? Right? If we are not willing to have the compassion to stop and set those other things aside, who do we expect is going to do that? If not those who follow Christ, then who? Right? Because every one of us, every one of us, you look at your friends, you look at your family, everybody is full to capacity. Nobody is going to have that compassion if we don't, right? So getting back to the Samaritan, he had compassion on this man. He started meeting this need. And he didn't stop to even wonder about the racial and, and political differences between them. He knew this was a big no-no. 
You do not, as a Samaritan, interact with a Jewish person. And yet he responded based on the need of this man. It became the number one priority, even over those religious and political differences. You know, he met the need without asking things like, is this person on the other side of the aisle for me? You know, uh, is this potentially a, a bigot? Somebody that I would never want to spend time with. Maybe a scoundrel or worse. He saw this man as another human being, as a brother, and he did all he could to care and love. And this teaching, you guys, was modeled in Jesus' life over and over again. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. We get to see this picture of when Jesus met Matthew for the first time. And Matthew was a tax collector. And much like the Samaritans, tax collectors were hated. They, it was like the sheriff of Nottingham, right? You know, you know on, on Robin Hood. He comes in and he, he taxes people exorbitant amounts, and then he pockets a lot of that, becomes rich. That's what these tax collectors were doing, and they were hated for it. They were outcasts from society. This is who Jesus comes up and says, follow me. And what's crazy is Matthew gave it all up, and he followed. And something that we forget about oftentimes is think about the other disciples that are with Jesus. What did they think about this? They hated this man, and they hated the fact he was now part of their group. This is crazy, right? So they all go to Matthew's house, and Matthew wants to throw a feast. And so he invites all of his friends, who are tax collectors. They're sinners. They're the outcasts of society. He invites them all, and then, and then these religious people that kind of are noticing this, they start asking Jesus and the disciples, how can you eat with these people? How can you spend time with them? And Jesus' answer was amazing. He said this in Matthew chapter 9. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus saw himself as a healer. That was his purpose. We see it all the time. He was healing physically. But something that we miss a lot of times is he was looking for the hurting and the sick internally. right? The people who were emotionally wounded and carrying this baggage. He was going to them as well. The abused and the beaten down and the marginalized. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever been abandoned by your parent or a spouse? Have you ever been mistreated because of the color of your skin or your orientation? If you have, you know the emotional trauma. The wounds that you carry are deep they're debilitating. They impact everything. And Jesus knew this. You know, one of the hardest things about these types of wounds is they're invisible to most people. They're harder to see. They take a lot of time to work through, and they're messy. As Jesus lived this out, he was continually pointing people back to notice how this is the heart of God. God cares for the hurting. There's a lot of verses in Scripture that we could talk to talk about that really describe this, but I want to talk about one. And uh, 
It comes uh, to us in Proverbs chapter 14. It says this, He who oppresses the poor taunts their maker. Notice that. He who oppresses the poor taunts their maker. There's this relationship between the people, the needy, and their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors him. You know, we think about worship in particular ways. You know, for you, it might be listening to KSBJ, getting that music fixed, uh, going to church, spending time in your Bible, your daily devotional, praying, confessing, maybe giving money and generosity. But what we see in verses like this over and over again is God is saying, you want to worship me? Here's what worship looks like. It's helping the needy. This is how you honor me and what you do. And we see God's stance over and over on the lowly and then also on his expectations of those who see it, who notice and, and can help. But here's the thing, guys. If we're going to start to do this, to make uh, our lives uh, look like and love like Jesus more, we've got to understand this, that uh, he's not calling us to a place of serenity and continual comfort. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be messy because that's where Jesus went. And if we're following him, that's where he's going today. There's going to be a cost to that kind of love, but also understand there is an even greater reward. So this is my call to all of us. I want us to consider reevaluating what our lives should be about. Maybe ask a question of yourself today like this. Who or what am I following after? Am I following after Jesus? Or is that maybe just in word, not in deed? Am I following after comfort and ease and entertainment and feeling good? Maybe the lion's share of our time needs to shift to the things and the people that Jesus spent his time worrying about. Jesus made a unique statement at the end of his command in John chapter 13. I want to I want to talk about that now. <clears throat> A new commandment I gave to you, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Do people know that I'm a Christ follower because of how I love other people? If you were to ask your closest friend or family member this question about yourself, what would their answer be? Oh, yeah, all the time. I see that. Or would it just be, well, some, sometimes I see that. Or rare, or maybe never. What do people see in our life? I want to end today with four practical ways that we can start to do this. And really, I think this is so valuable to take ideas, these theological ideas, and really start to apply them uh, in our lives that we can start today, start applying them this week. The first is be present. And what I mean by this is open our eyes. 
We've got to open our eyes and see what's going on around us. And, and you know, for a lot of us, it's going to mean we've got to set the phones down and be present. It may mean set the remote down and, go, and get to know your neighbors, you know. And I'm speaking to myself here. I have neighbors that live right next to me. I don't even know their names. And we've been there for like three and a half years. That that's, uh, shouldn't be that way, right? Do you see the woman who's just been crying at Starbucks? Do you notice the man pushing the shopping cart down the sidewalk? Do you see the car with the hazard lights on? Do you see the invisible wounds of the people around you? This is what God did for us. He saw our need and our predicament before we ever noticed it. Romans talks about this. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, we were not looking for it. We hadn't made any changes whatsoever. Christ died for us. That's how he shows his love, is he's present. The second is this, be approachable. We must remove the boundaries that keep people at a distance. Again, I'm not harping on phones necessarily, but I think they are and can be a big problem. We've got to put our phones down because when we're on our phones all the time, that's telling people, you know what, my intention is here. I'm busy. Don't, don't talk to me right now, right? What does your body language imply to people? What about your facial expressions? Do they feel invitation or do they, they feel kind of the standoffishness from that? So God, right, he sees our predicament, how we are separated from him in relationship, and he makes a way. He makes a way to be approachable. As Jesus comes to earth, he lives and he dies on a Roman cross. He gives his life so that we can be in relationship with God. And now, guys, we get to approach the God of the universe and we get to call him Daddy. We are a part of the family and God was the one that made a way to be approached. He did this for us. The third one is step into the mess. When you see it, step in. This is a big step for us, right? This, this may cause some some real angst uh, this week, rather than turning away or saying, you know what, somebody else, somebody else is going to have the margin in their life to do this. <clears throat> Step into the mess with the hungry person outside McDonald's. Step into the mess with the single mom trying to make ends meet. Step into the mess with the gay kid that sits alone at the lunch table. And my list could go on and on, Right? I think one thing that keeps us from doing this is we worry about, like, we are not equipped for what I see here. I don't have what it takes to help this person fix their car. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what, uh, I don't have the money, possibly, to help this person. We feel ill-equipped, and, and we justify, ah, somebody else, somebody else is going to really have it. And I want you to know God will give us everything we need as we step into the mess it may just be a cell phone they need to call help. It may just be your presence there in their moment of crisis, knowing that I'm not alone in this. Guys, that is so powerful. So step into the mess. That's number three. Here's the last one. I want to end with this. Expect joy. 
Expect joy if you're going to do these things because God sees them. He's going to bless you for them. <clears throat> there was uh, a couple coming through town about a year ago. I was out uh, getting gas at a gas station. My 11-year-old daughter, Ellie, was with me. And uh, we were approached by this couple who uh, they were refugees from Hurricane Harvey. They were coming through trying to get to family uh, up in Waco. And uh, they had a tire that was uh, about to go out. And so we follow them over to Discount Tire, and we're sitting there. And uh, my daughter strikes up a conversation with them. And what I got to experience was a blessing of seeing the, this older couple, what, uh, how they were touched by my daughter, of her attention, her conversation. It was beautiful. And as a father, I'm just so proud watching as this happens. And, and yet there's another joy in that for me as a dad. My daughter got to experience what it feels like to help someone and to help an adult. That's so rare, I think, for our children to really know what that feels like. And she was talking about it for weeks after. She was so excited about that and talking about how good it felt. It was awesome for me to get to see how her heart was being shaped more like Jesus by an interaction like that. So guys, this week, let's be present. Let's be approachable. Step into the mess. Expect joy and love like Jesus. We've got a world that's waiting and watching for the answer of what our lives should be about. And we've got to give them the answer. It's love. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.